We have just heard read one of the great chapters of the Bible, Isaiah 6. Uh, It's one of those chapters that if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you probably know, uh, like the back of your hand, you were probably reciting it uh, as Peter's father read it to us. You were probably reciting it in your mind, in your heart. It is one of the great glorious chapters of the Bible. It is one of those chapters that causes us to soar in our thoughts of God. And yet it's one of those chapters in Scripture that is sort of problematic because many theologians and pastors haven't known what to do with it. Why does it stand here in the sixth chapter of Isaiah's prophecy, well into the prophecy he began? Why doesn't it stand at the head of the book? Um, Many have wrestled with that. There have been many who who have believed that this was uh, redacted. It was put into Isaiah's prophecy in the wrong place, that it should stand at the head I am not convinced of that. I believe that Isaiah was already a prophet when uh, this encounter that he had with the Lord happened, and that it served a very specific purpose in his role as the greatest of the prophets in Israel's history. Uh, Before we look at this, I want to put a thought to you this evening as Peter is coming to be ordained to the gospel ministry, hopefully for the rest of his life, to serve the Lord um, in the one life that God has given him in this capacity. Uh, One of those questions that I'm sure has filled his mind along the way, and a question you may have wondered, is what makes a successful minister? Now, I don't mean successful in the American sense, We all know that if you're gifted enough, if you're articulate enough, if you're bright enough, you can grow a church without the Holy Spirit. That's one of the sad realities of the church in America. But what what does a successful ministry require if we use that term biblically? What is a successful gospel ministry built on? And I think that Isaiah 6 has the answer for us. I want us to look at four things tonight. I don't know how I'm going to do this in 25 minutes, but we'll try. We are going to look first at the necessity of a vision of the Lord. Secondly, the necessity of the undoing of a prophet. Third, the application of the atoning sacrifice. And fourth, the call and the commission to ministry. Well, notice that Isaiah tells us that uh, here as one of the most beloved of the kings of Israel has died, Uzziah, under whose reign Israel had prospered. He was a southern king and he had done marvelous uh, things at the end of his life. He, being puffed up with pride, had fallen. He stopped trusting the Lord. He became a leper. He was separated from the people of God and he spent the remainder of his days sequestered from the temple and from the people of God. And, and now he's died. And as it's true with any transition in a nation with uh, one ruler or one king to another, you can imagine that the people were distraught, that this was a time of despair. This was a time of darkness. This was a time of, of questioning, what is the Lord doing? And it's at that moment, Isaiah tells us, It's at that time in the year when King Uzziah had died that God gave him this glorious vision of himself on the throne, high and lifted up. 
the train of his robe filling the temple. Isaiah, no doubt, was in the temple in Jerusalem. He had traveled up to Jerusalem and he had gone to the temple. And at that moment, perhaps when he's in despair, wondering what's going to happen to the nation, God gave Isaiah what is one of the greatest encounters anyone has ever had with the true and living God. I want you to think about this. This happened 2,800 years ago. And we're talking about it tonight in Charlotte, North Carolina. The Lord flooded the temple with his glory. And he opened Isaiah's eyes to see something about him that was new in order to shape him and form him into who he wanted him to be as his minister and as his prophet. Now, the first and most obvious thing that Isaiah sees is the Lord exalted. And then that picture of the holiness of God. Around him stood the seraphim, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. One cried to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew, having a coal in his hands that he had taken from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. One of the things that we notice is that as Isaiah is getting a glimpse of the holiness of God, it touches every one of his senses. I don't know if you've ever seen that before. He sees the Holy One. By the way, he'll use that term to describe Jehovah 60 times in this book. This sets the tone for everything else in his message. He speaks of God as the high and exalted Holy One of Israel. He sees with his eyes the holiness of God. He hears with his ears the angels flying with just a third of their wings, holding themselves up before the throne as they cover their faces and their feet, as it were, to hide themselves from the presence of God's sinless beings, needing to hide themselves, as it were, from the holiness of God. And he hears them crying out, holy, holy, holy. It's the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. No doubt, he smelled the smoke. The holiness of God, all-consuming. He smelled the smoke that was filling the temple. He felt with his body the shaking of the ground. He felt in his body the holiness of God and the judgment of God, as it were causing a great earthquake there in the holy place in the temple, the very place where God dwelt. And then I think it would be fair to say he, in a sense, tasted the holiness of God. His lips, which we'll talk about in a minute, his lips were touched with a hot coal from the altar. Every part of Isaiah's senses, it's as if he is being suffocated by the holiness of God. Now, if you want to know what it takes to make a successful minister, it takes an encounter with God 
where you are almost suffocated by a vision of his holiness. And we have such a low view of our God, such a low view, such an anemic picture we have of him. There's a story of two little boys who are um, out playing. One little boy has come over to his friend's house and I have three sons, so I, this could have been my house. And they're running in the mud, and they're getting all muddy. And the, the one little boy whose house it is says to his friend, come on, let's go inside. And he said, but, but we're all muddy. And, you know, isn't your, your mom going to, isn't she going to be upset about us coming in muddy? And he said, oh, no, my mom doesn't care. I don't know who, whose kid this is, but my mom doesn't care. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not my wife's son. Uh, um, and, and so they go in the house and they track mud through the house. And the one little boy said, I wish I had a nice, dirty mommy like you. And the reality is as sinners, we want a nice, dirty God like us. We want a nice, dirty God like us. And he is so pure and so holy. There's not one touch of unrighteousness in him. He is of purer eyes than to look on evil. You know, right now we see the scaffolding. Peter will start his ministry formally tonight. And all you'll ever see is the scaffold. And on judgment day, that scaffolding will be taken down. And what was driving him in ministry, as what drives us as Christians, will be revealed. And it takes an encounter with the Lord, where we come to terms with the fact that he is infinitely holy. For us to be effective in his service and fruitful as ministers or as Christians in his service. Well, there is also a sense of the judgment of God. The holiness of God uh, brings also a vision of the judgment of God, the shaking, the earthquake, the, the smoke. These things were at Sinai, remember, when God came down and there, there was smoke and there was thunder and there was lightning and God was visiting his people in judgment. And here in Isaiah 6, the Lord is coming to Isaiah, yes, to deal with him, but he's coming to deal with his people. His people had forsaken him. His people had turned from him. In the chapter just before this, Isaiah has pronounced six woes on Israel for their rebellion and their sin. He has, he has already made that faithful proclamation that God's people had become ritualistic. They had, they had gone through all the, the, the rituals. They had gone through all the steps. They were just going through the religious life. They were boasting in the temple. They were boasting in what they had in their ethnic privileges as God's covenant people, but their hearts were far from him. And in the Lord dealing with Isaiah, the Lord was coming and preparing to come in judgment on his people. You know, it is very unpopular in our day to preach about judgment and wrath and hell. And yet, that is so much a part of a faithful, successful ministry. On Judgment Day, 
a successful ministry will be one built on men that had courage to say the hard things when those around them don't have courage and when people in the church don't want to hear it. Um, Isaiah will be given that word at the end of this when God says, here's the message. Go tell this people, keep, keep seeing and don't see, keep hearing and, and don't hear. And our Lord Jesus, who Isaiah is seeing in this vision, will cite that very word in John chapter 12. And, and, and John will tell us that Isaiah saw him on the throne, that this is the Lord Jesus and that the ministry that the Lord Jesus had, by the way, don't let anybody ever fool you about this. Jesus wasn't crucified for being super nice to people. He is gentle and meek and full of grace, grace and mercy and kindness and compassion. He doesn't break a bruised reed. He doesn't quench a smoking flask. But Jesus was crucified for speaking the hard and difficult truths of God and calling men out of darkness and into the light of his knowledge and his mercy and his grace and his truth. Well, Isaiah is given that vision and now There is a response to that. There's an undoing of the prophet. I noted already that in chapter 5, there were six woes. And now, very interesting here, Isaiah has another woe to pronounce. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. In verse 5, he now doesn't pronounce woes on the nation. He says, woe is me. Woe is me. What What is the proper response to a vision of the holiness and judgment of God? It is to realize that I am undone, that I deserve judgment, that I am a man just like those God is sending me to by nature. I am not over them. I am not better than them. I am not holier than them. Isaiah comes apart when he sees this vision. And he says, woe is me. I am undone. I am, I am dissolving before the presence of the Lord, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Very interesting that Isaiah's sin, the conviction about which he has when he sees this vision of God, is in the very place where he had been gifted and called by God to minister. Isn't that interesting? Man of unclean lips. People looked to Isaiah for the word of the Lord, and he, he recognized that his mouth, like James says, by nature is a world of iniquity. As Peter is coming to be ordained for gospel ministry and to be faithful in that call of God, um, Peter, I'll address you just briefly. You must always... Always be the first to be undone before the Lord. To be undone before the holiness of God, before you ever preach to anyone else. Um, There is, third, an application of the atoning sacrifice. There's holiness. There is judgment. There is coming undone. And then there's this beautiful picture of the gospel, isn't there, that one of the seraphim flies over, having in his hand one of the coals from the altar. The cross is the altar. That's a symbol of the cross. 
and he's taking, as it were, some of the blood of Jesus. And he's going over and he's cleansing Isaiah. He's cleansing him. He says, your sin is taken away. The most effective, successful ministers of the gospel, the only truly successful ministers are those who have had their sins taken away by the blood of Jesus. Because at the end of the day, that's all that we have to offer anyone else so that they would have life and they would know the Lord and they would be reconciled to him and there would be any power and efficacy in our ministries. There's a story of Samuel Rutherford, the uh, great Scottish theologian, that he, uh, in his early ministry, preached a whole lot of law, which was not always uncommon with some of the Scots. And um, Rutherford was presumably converted, saw his own sin, saw his need for the blood of Jesus, and one day, his, the tone of his ministry changed completely, and he started preaching the gospel. He started preaching Christ crucified. He started preaching the blood of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus. And one of his elders stood up, and he said while he was preaching, hold it there. Hold it there. The people needed that. Their hearts longed for that. Rutherford needed it for his ministry to be fruitful and evident. We all need that glorious gospel application to our hearts and our tongues and our minds and the whole of our beings. Well, there's finally the call to ministry. Now, I've noted already that I believe Isaiah was already called uh, prior to this, that he had already been commissioned by the Lord, but there is a renewed sense in which he is called, and, and he has gone from intimidated by the holiness of God, undone by the holiness of God, crushed by the all-pervasive, suffocating vision of the glory of God in his temple, and crying out, woe is me, to now hearing the Lord say, who will go for us? Um, scholars have sometimes liked to envision Isaiah as standing up and waving and saying, here I am, send me. He goes from being undone to begging the Lord to use him. Um, Oh, that we had that kind of zeal among our people in our pulpits. Um, There's no dry, lifeless monotonous, rote, ritualistic, carrying out of the ministry. There is a fervent zeal to respond to the call of God's ministry. And it's necessary because the Lord is going to give him a very difficult message. Um, Isaiah was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets by far. And if you... If you wanted to know if he had a fruitful ministry, you come to toward the end of his prophecy in Isaiah 53, the great uh, suffering servant chapter. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was forsaken, but he did not open his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before his shearers is silent. He opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and judgment. Who can declare his generation? He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And so on. And yet at the opening of that prophecy, the first verse of Isaiah 53, Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? And the answer, very simply put, is not many. Not many. And the Lord was preparing Isaiah for a ministry in which many, if not most, rejected the gospel, rejected the grace of God, rejected the suffering servant, rejected God's pleas to come to him and to be washed and build up. And anyone, whether you are a gospel minister or not, who is a faithful Christian, must be prepared for the same sort of sparse and thin, true responses to the message of the gospel. I'll leave you with this thought. The Apostle Paul, only one time in the New Testament ever uses the word triumph to the best of my ability. I, I'm correct in, in saying that. Um, and it's in 2 Corinthians, and he says there, um, he says, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph and through us diffuses the aroma of Christ. We are to some the aroma of life to life. We are to others the aroma of death to death. And who is sufficient? And what Paul is saying is whether Peter Scheidt, whether you are faithful in Christian service and you you see some come to know the Lord Jesus or you are the smell of death unto death to them. It is triumph and it is success. And it is success. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would make us a people who see your all-pervasive holiness we pray that you would flood our minds and our hearts with a vision of your exalted, um, undiluted, permeating holiness. That you would make us a people that come to terms with the fact that you are a God who begins judgment at your house among your people. We pray that you would also make us a people who know well the gospel We've had our hearts and our lives and our tongues uh, cleansed from our iniquity by the blood of Jesus. We pray for Peter as he enters in on ministry that you would give him everything that you gave Isaiah. We pray that you would make him exceedingly fruitful. We pray that you would give him zeal in responding to the call. We pray that even when times may get difficult, that, Lord, you would strengthen him with your very presence 
and your word and your grace and with the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.